0: We are in Romans chapter 12 today, so if you would please be so kind as to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to go ahead and read through the first six verses of Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is a new section of the epistle to the Romans. Now, of course you say, well, yes it is, it's a new chapter. But as I've said so many times before, in the original letter, there were no chapter divisions. These were things that were added centuries later in the Middle Ages by the monks, the scribes who were copying the scriptures, making it easier for us to digest them, making it easier for us to memorize the scriptures. And sometimes those chapter divisions can seem rather arbitrary, to be perfectly honest with you. There are times when I think to myself, that's not a good place to make a chapter division because Paul is not actually beginning a new argument here, it's a continuation of what he's already been saying this is a case however where a chapter division is most appropriate because paul is moving in to a whole new section in this great epistle and that's indicated to us by the word therefore in verse 1. he writes i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Somebody has said, whenever you see the word therefore in the scriptures, you should always pause and ask yourself, what is it there for? (laughs) And that is certainly the case here. That term therefore implies that whatever is going to follow is predicated or based on what has gone before. So Paul really is beginning a new section. He said, based upon what has gone before, let us then, dot, 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 let us then live or conduct ourselves in an altogether new way. Paul is now beginning what we often refer to as the practical section of the epistle, at which point everybody breathes a sigh of relief. Ah, finally, we're getting into the practical section. I mean, we Americans are practical people, aren't we? We want to know, what do we have to do? Just tell me what I have to do. And we have been pushing through 11 chapters of deep doctrine and theology to finally get to the section where the rubber hits the road, or so we think what i want to show you is that the 11 chapters that have gone before are absolutely essential to understanding the therefore to understanding the therefore some years ago francis Schaeffer, christian theologian and christian philosopher some of you perhaps have read francis Schaeffer. He is a great commentator on the culture. He died back in the 1980s, but his books are still relevant today. In fact, I would go so far as to say much of what Francis Schaeffer wrote, and I think in many ways he was a modern prophet, much of what he wrote is even more applicable to us today in 2024 than it was when he wrote it back in the 1980s, because he could really see the cultural trends. But one of his great books is a book entitled, How Shall We Then? live and it's about living the Christian life. And that title I think is very insightful. He doesn't say, how shall we live? If he had simply titled the book, how shall we live? You would have had about, well, As many people as there are out there in the culture with opinions, that's as many titles as you would have given. That's as many answers as you would have been given to that question, how shall we live? Some people would say, well, you ought to live this way or you ought to live that way. But you'll notice that's not what he said. He doesn't say, how shall we live? He said, how shall we then live? That is to say, based upon what we know as Christian people, there is an implication for the way that we should conduct our lives. That is exactly what Paul is saying here in chapter 12, verse one, by that word. Therefore, he's saying, how shall we then? Or based upon everything that I have just revealed to you in the previous 11 chapters, what difference does that make in your life? How now should you live? Now, in order to answer that question, it's worth going back and remembering everything that Paul has said to us in the previous 11 chapters. Now, I'm not going to do a long review, to which I'm sure you'll all say, thanks be to God but nevertheless, it is helpful for us to remember what Paul has been saying. And it's helpful in part because we have been spending so many weeks, indeed months, concentrating on just chapters nine through 11, which I pointed out to you last week is really in many ways a sidebar. It's really an excursus on Paul's part. It's not part of his main argument. It's an important part of what he has to say but it's really a response to a question that has been raised against his main argument. Remember in Romans chapter eight, which is the pinnacle of everything that Paul had been saying in the previous chapters, he's sort of reached the, the high point of his argument. And the argument or the high point of that argument is that because we are in Christ Jesus, there is no separation from the love of God. There is no condemnation anymore, and there is no defeat for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that's all wonderful, but somebody raises the question, well, that's great and that sounds marvelous. The only problem, of course, is that if that's a promise to God, didn't God make promises to the Jews? And it appears as though the Jews have not accepted Christ. They have rejected the gospel. So it seems as though God's covenant promise with them has failed. And if God's covenant promise with them has failed, how do we know that there will be no defeat? No separation, no condemnation. If God's promise failed with the Jews, how do we know that that promise won't fail with us? And what Paul does in chapters nine through 11 is he proceeds to answer that objection. But then what he does is he returns in chapter 12 to the main thrust of his argument. All right, so it's helpful for us to go back and remember what Paul has said in chapters one through eight. We don't have to go back and review chapters nine through 11 but we do need to understand what he's saying in Romans one through eight in order to understand the therefore in chapter 12. So what does Paul say in those first eight chapters of Romans? Well, in chapters one through four, what he is talking about is the fact that God has delivered us from judgment remember what he says in Romans chapter one he says for the wrath of God is being poured out against all the ungodliness and wickedness of mankind because man has suppressed the truth about God remember Paul doesn't say that mankind is simply ignorant of the truth of God he says God has made himself known in the things that have been made that's what we call general revelation God has made himself known in the creation But mankind, rather than acknowledging that truth, we have done what? We have suppressed the truth so that we can live our own way. And the result of that, he says, is that we are under God's judgment. We are under the wrath of God. But we have been delivered from that. And we have been delivered from that by an alien righteousness. The situation is not just that we're under the wrath of God that would be bad in and of itself but what makes the situation even worse is the fact that there is nothing we can do to improve our lot there's nothing that we can do to placate God's wrath or his anger but the good news is that God because he is rich in mercy decides to deliver us when we cannot deliver ourselves he makes us righteous but it is a righteousness that comes from the outside. It's not a righteousness that can be found within us. So he has delivered us from wrath. He has delivered us from judgment. He has released us from the burden of the law. Of course, that's what the Jews felt that they had to keep every jot, every tittle of the law in order to earn God's favor. And what Paul has said is that there is only one who has ever been able to keep the law perfectly, and he is our new Adam. He is our new representative, Jesus Christ. And because he has kept the law perfectly and our lives are hidden in Christ, we are therefore declared righteous, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done on our behalf. And it doesn't stop there. What's even better is that God has not only declared us righteous, but now he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who begins to work in our lives to make us into the very thing that God has declared us to be. We have been declared righteous. Now the Holy Spirit begins the work of sanctification in our lives to make us into the very thing that God has declared us to be. So we've been released from the burden of the law and we have ultimately been given the hope of glory. So just think about that tremendous arc, that tremendous change. Under law, nothing we can do to improve our lot or our condition. We are lost forever, but God, but God intervenes. He declares us righteous as a matter of free grace, not on the basis of anything that we have done. We receive that gift, a free gift by faith. And then God begins to work in us to declare us to be the very thing or to make us into the very thing that he has already declared us to be. And once our lives are hidden in Christ, then we know that our lot has changed. We have passed from death to life. That's why Paul begins chapter eight with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. He goes on to say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know that? Because it is the work of God from start to finish, from stem to stern. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined he called, and those he called he justified, and those he justified he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God has done all of that on our behalf, Paul says, who can possibly be against us? If God has already given us the very best he has, that is the gift of his own son, is he going to withhold anything else that we need? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, therefore, In light of the fact that God has done all of that, in view of the fact that God has intervened on our behalf and brought us from death to life, how shall we then live? That's the great question. Now, one of the things that you'll notice in Paul's epistles, this is generally the case in all of his epistles it's clearer in some than others but generally Paul's practice is always to present us with doctrine first and then he moves on to practice so you have chapters 1 through 8 before you ever get to chapter 12. And there's a very good reason for that. Now, as I said, as Americans, we are very practical people. We wanna get to where the rubber hits the road. Just tell me what I have to do. Why, Why do I have to listen to all this stuff about predestination and election and all of that sort of thing? Just tell me what I need to do. Just tell me how I'm supposed to live my life. But you see, no one can say how you are to live your life until you first understand that doctrine because the doctrine is foundational. It is absolutely foundational. The way we live our life is predicated on what we know about God, and the only thing we can know about God is what he has revealed to us. Now you can see this very clearly, for example, in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. So keep your finger there in Romans 12 and turn to Ephesians. I turn to Ephesians because Ephesians is a shorter letter than Romans, as you know. but all of the doctrines that you find fleshed out in Romans are there in an abbreviated form in Ephesians and I want you to notice how Paul begins his epistle to the Ephesians in chapters 1 and 2 he starts off with all of this doctrine he talks about the mystery that was hidden in ages past the church here's what he says in chapter 1 beginning at verse 11 he says in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined, oh, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now you turn to chapter 2 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we were by nature children of wrath same concept that you get in romans chapter one we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind but god there you go but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses see before we had done anything to improve our situation before we had managed to get our act together or organize our lives But even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in these opening chapters of Ephesians, what Paul is saying is, God has delivered us, he explains how God has delivered us, by making us alive, even when we were dead. Faith is a gift, it is the result of regeneration, It is the evidence of our salvation. But while we have been saved from something, from the wrath of God, we have also been saved for something, for what? For good works. I always emphasize that because I think very often what happens is that everybody reads Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Everybody knows that passage. You're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man may boast. But we miss the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works don't save any of us, that's very clear. It's a matter of God's grace but while good works do not save us they are the fruit they are the evidence of our salvation and because we have been delivered in this way therefore we should live differently and that's what Paul goes on to talk about in chapters four five and six think about chapter five of Ephesians what does Paul deal with in chapter five very practical things He says, in light of the fact that God has made you alive even when you were dead, in light of the fact that he has justified you by grace through faith, in light of the fact that he has saved you from something, from wrath and judgment and death, and saved you for something, for good works, therefore, here's how you ought to live. And he goes on in chapter 5 to talk about the relationship between husbands and wives. What could be more practical than that? He talks about the relationship between husbands and wives he goes on to talk about the relationship between slaves and masters oh you think that doesn't apply to us today well think in terms of employees and employers he talks about the relationship between children and parents anybody want practical advice on how to deal with your children or your grandchildren Even your adult children could hardly be more practical than that. And then finally, he deals with the whole issue of spiritual warfare. He reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the cosmic powers over this dark age. It is a struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. And here's how we are to conduct ourselves in that. Paul talks about the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And finally, he talks about taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, those are very practical things. But you can only get to the practical once you've laid the foundation. And that is why the doctrine, this high, deep, ethereal theology is so important. You cannot have the practical without the theological. Think about why doctrine is so necessary as a foundation. There must be a foundation for anything that we do, for our actions. Just think about all of the issues that will be debated in this next round of presidential debates, or lack thereof, who knows if we'll have a debate or not. But lots of issues will be discussed in this next presidential cycle. You'll hear people talk about family values. Let me ask you a question. How many of you think that family values are an important topic? How many of you think we need a return to family values? All right, let me ask you a question. What family? Whose family? When we talk about family values, the question is this, what family are we talking about? Are you talking about the nuclear family? Are you talking about the traditional family? Are you talking about single parent families? Are you talking about homosexual families? See, we talk about a return to family values, but the question is, what family? (laughs) Whose family? You see, your practice is gonna be predicated upon your foundation. What is your foundation? We're gonna talk about education. Now, how many of you think that there's a crisis in education these days? Some of you are getting a little nervous, thinking this is a trick question. I know, it's a setup, I know it, I can feel it. Oh yes, education is an important thing. How many of you think that there needs to be more effort put into the education of our children? All right, we all agree that education is valuable, but my question is this, what kind of an education? A kind of public education in which children are given prophylactics and that sort of thing in health class? What kind of an education are we talking about? Are we talking about a classical education? You see, we talk about these things, but the values that we hold have to be predicated or laid on the foundation of something. And that's why everything that Paul says in these previous eight chapters are so important. We're gonna talk about morality. People are always talking about morality, but what kind of morality? Some of you may have heard about the atrocity that took place just a few weeks ago in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. I'm not going to talk about it here in this class. Just go back and Google the funeral that took place in St. Patrick's Cathedral. It was a desecration of the space. In fact, the Roman Catholic Diocese of New York actually had to have what is called a mass of reparations to make up for what had taken place in that cathedral the previous weekend. we talk about morality, the question is, whose morality? (laughs) Every culture has a morality. This is something that we have to remember because most of us sitting in this room today grew up within a Christian context. And when I say a Christian context, we at least grew up living off the fumes of a Judeo-Christian morality. But that is now gone from our society. So when you talk to young people today about living a moral life. Their idea of the moral life is gonna be radically different from your idea of a moral life because your standards of morality are completely different from their standards of morality. So when we ask the question, what kind of morality, when I turn to morality, the question is whose morality? That's why Paul spends eight chapters talking about God and what God has done and who God is and who we are in relationship to him and his authority. And it's on the basis of that foundation that we begin to live our lives in a certain way. So you always have to ask the question when people say, how then shall we live? The first thing you have to settle is what is the foundation for your morality, for your life? for your worldview, and that's what Paul is doing here. What happens when there is no doctrinal foundation? What happens when there is no settled foundation as to how we should then live? I'll tell you exactly what happens. You end up in a situation just like you saw in the nation of Israel at the end of the book of Judges. The end of the book of Judges describes a very difficult time in the life of the nation of Israel. We're told there was no king in the land and each person did what was right in his own eyes. And brothers and sisters, that is an apt description of Western culture and American life today. There is no foundation, there is no authority or a king in the land, and therefore, each person does what is right in his or her own eyes, and that is a sure recipe for chaos. And history records that every single society, without exception, that has lived that way has ultimately declined and perished. So given everything that Paul has said, given the fact that you and I as Christians have been given a different foundation, given what we know God has done on our behalf for us and for our salvation, the question is how then should we Live, And that's what Paul is going to go on to talk about in the succeeding chapters. He said, given the fact that we have been delivered from the wrath of God, Given the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith, in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it, given the fact that God has bestowed upon us the grace of the Holy Spirit, who is at work in our lives, renovating our lives, transforming us into something new, into a new creation, given the fact that God has loved us so much that nothing can separate us from His love, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principal things to come, how then should we live? On the basis of what God has done, how should we conduct ourselves? That's what Paul is gonna talk about. He's going to talk about, for example, the Christian and the way we should conduct ourselves in relationship to God. That's very practical. Because God is the most important thing in the universe. Paul is going to go on to talk about the way that the Christian should conduct themselves in the light of what God has done in terms of their relationships with other people. In light of what God has done, Paul is going to talk about the way that the Christians should conduct themselves in relationship to the state. I think it's very interesting that Paul talks about the relationship of the believer to the state. Now, you think about the state in Paul's day. What was the state in Paul's day? It was the Roman Empire. How do you conduct yourself as a Christian in relationship to a polytheistic pagan government? I think that's a good primer for us right now. How do we conduct ourselves in relationship to a government with which we may not agree? Paul's gonna talk about how we should conduct ourselves in light of what Christ has done as loving people. Because love is the supreme, the supreme value, the supreme virtue. And that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. If you have faith, but you don't have love, what are you? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul's gonna talk about how we are to live. What does love really look like? Is love, as Tina Turner said, nothing but a secondhand emotion? Or is it more than that? And finally, Paul is going to talk to us in a very practical way in light of what Christ has done about something that is very precious to Americans and that is Christian liberty, Christian liberty. So he's gonna talk about some very important things in the chapters that bring us to the end of this epistle, but all of those things are predicated on what has gone before, what God has done, who we are and who God is. We are sinners who suppress the truth, God is gracious, merciful, he has delivered us, Not because we deserve it, but in spite of the fact that we do not. He has given us the hope of glory. Nothing can separate us from his love. Therefore, this is how we should live. So let's just jump right into it. Chapter 12, verse 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living body sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship Paul is saying if you really have experienced what he has described in those previous eight chapters if you really are a Christian if you really claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ if you really claim that your life is hidden in Christ's life that your destiny is the same as his destiny that as he died so you died as he was raised so you are raised he said therefore you should live as he lived and that means you need to present yourself and this is very powerful language he says present your bodies as a living what sacrifice you know what somebody once said the problem with the living sacrifices said the problem with the living sacrifices that it always crawls off the altar <laughs> sacrifices are things that die when you sacrifice an animal it dies when Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac the boy would die what Paul is saying here is that if you really are a Christian this is how you should live. You should present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that means that we need to understand first and foremost that we do not belong to ourselves. A sacrifice does not belong to itself, it is offered up. And what that means is that you and I do not belong to ourselves. We live in this age, the triumph of the ego. We live in this age in which people said, I am the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I will determine how I live. It's all about me. But Paul says in light of what Christ has done for us, it's not all about you. You give up your life. It is a living Sacrifice, and you give it up because it wasn't yours to begin with. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter six. These are two very important passages. When you think about, well, I have a right to do this. I have a right to happiness. Don't I have a right to? Whenever you talk about your rights, it's not that we don't have rights. It's just that as Christians, we willingly surrender those rights. See, everybody wants to stand on their rights. They always want to talk about their rights. That's a big thing in our culture today. It's not that Christians don't have rights, the Declaration of Independence got it right. We are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. It's not that the Christian doesn't have rights. Paul is saying that as Christians, what we have done is we have given up those rights. Doesn't he say that in Philippians when he talks about your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who was in very nature what? God. Everything was his by right. But he did what? He gave up his rights. Although he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, he emptied himself and became obedient unto death and took the form of a servant. The Greek is doulos, it means bond servant, it means slave. So it's not that Christ didn't have rights, everything was his by right. (laughs) But he surrendered his rights. Paul says you and I need to be prepared to surrender our rights and to remember that technically speaking we are not our own first corinthians chapter 6 for you were bought with a price so glorify god with your body you were bought with a price so glorify god with your body you are not your own And what was the price with which we were bought? Well, that's what Peter talks about in that epistle that he writes. So turn, if you will, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter one. 1 Peter chapter one. Verses 18 and 19. For you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers. That is to say, you were purchased out of the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And you were purchased with what? He says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that with like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You and I are not our own. Christ bought us. And he bought us, not with perishable things like silver and gold, he bought us with the price of what? His very own life. Therefore, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. You were bought with a price. That's the first thing we need to understand about what it means to be a living sacrifice. Here's the second thing we need to remember about being a living sacrifice. It is a continuous thing. It is a sacrifice, but it is a living sacrifice. This is what Jesus talked about when he said to his disciples, if any man would follow me, he must first do what? say it say it the whole thing okay no now somebody may have gotten it right but what I heard the majority of people say was this correct me if I'm wrong Jesus said if anyone will be one of my followers he must first take up his cross and follow me is that right no because what he actually says deny himself yes and take up your cross but he says daily daily That's the key (laughs) This is not a once-for-all thing. We did it once we don't have to do it again Oh, no, Jesus said if anyone would be one of my followers he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and Follow me See that's what it really means to be a living sacrifice. It is to do it on a daily basis Anybody back there, Mark? Okay. Let me see if I can. That was me. I turned it off here. So um, can you still hear me? Okay, so I'm coming through on this. So you want me to try- turn it back on again? No, this is just fire thing. Okay, very good. Thank you. So it's a daily thing that we do. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. A sacrifice is something that dies once and for all. When when the high priest was sacrificed the lamb on the Day of Atonement, that lamb's job was done. (laughs) But see, Jesus talks about a daily sacrifice. That's what Paul means. It is daily dying. Dying to what? Dying to self, dying to your own hopes your own dreams, your own aspirations, your own plans. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? And that's why it's something that has to be done on a daily basis. You have to die to self daily. Think about what it means to die to self. I, I'll just give you a you know, this is a very trivial example But, you know, I have a sweet tooth. In fact, I don't have a sweet tooth. I have a mouth full of sweet teeth. I love sweets. I gave them up for Lent. Now, I took my daughter, as some of you know, I was away for the weekend. I took my daughter out to dinner. And my favorite dessert is Bananas Foster. And you can almost never find it these days, in part because no restaurant wants to come out because all the liability, you know, it has to be set ablaze. It has to be cooked there at the table side. So you'd never find it anymore. We went to a restaurant, and I looked at the dessert menu. You know, just because you're on a diet doesn't mean you can't look at the menu. So <laughs> I, I, I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at this, and guess what they were serving? Yeah. And I'd given it up for Lent. Yeah. I'm not telling you what I did. I'm telling you when I saw that a little part of me died (laughs) because I had denied myself. Now, when you're a priest, you can also absolve yourself. So that, you know, there's that, there's that part of it. But you understand that's a very trivial example, but a little part of you dies. A little part of you dies. that's what Paul is talking about here he's talking about dying to deny yourself the things that you want for the sake of Christ for the sake of the gospel when you do that a little part of you dies but he says that is how we are called to live on a daily basis to die to self because we follow the example of the one who died to self that we might live And if we understand that, if we understand what Paul has said in the first eight chapters, we will understand that this is how we are to live. And we are to do it on a daily basis. Because we were bought with a price, we are not our own. We were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the imperishable blood of Christ. So we are to die daily to self. We are to understand that we were bought with a price. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. But notice how he puts it. He says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We live in bodies. And it's with our bodies that we are to make this living sacrifice. It is in our bodies that we are to die daily to self in small ways and in big ways think about the parts of our bodies when paul says we are to die to self we're to be living sacrifices to present our bodies in this way he's talking about our minds that's what he talks about in philippians chapter 4 turn there again to Philippians if you will I want to go through all of these passages because you want to be practical well let's talk about what it means to be practical in terms of these things Philippians chapter 4 finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I cannot tell you how important it is to guard your mind in this culture. I don't think at any point in history it's ever been more difficult, in part because we are bombarded constantly You know, with each advance in technology, there are good sides to things and there are bad sides to things. Technology brings us a great many blessings, but it also brings us a great many temptations. Let's just be honest with you. And it is difficult when we're constantly being bombarded, particularly in a political year, when all of the ads are so negative. Do you ever notice how many of the ads have a positive spin on them? For whoever the candidate is. How many of them have a positive spin how many of them are saying this is what I want to do almost all of them are designed to what tear down denigrate the other candidate and that's the world we live in it's a world of negativity and Paul says that living as a sacrifice dying daily means that you need to die in your mind to those things instead he says whatever is lovely whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Where are you going to find those things in our culture? Well, not by watching television, I can tell you that. Not by spending all of your time scrolling on social media, I can tell you that. You're going to have to go someplace else. It's a good reminder to pick up a book. A good book, Bible study, the Rector's Bible study. That's a good way to do it. But dying daily to self is to give up those things. Let's be honest, it's, it's hard to give up the iPhone, isn't it? It's hard not to sit down after you've had a hard day and just watch mindless television. That's part of what it means to die to self. To think of whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. To present our bodies means to present our minds. And it means to present our eyes and our ears. Matthew chapter 6. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus has to say about this. you think Paul's tough, think about what Jesus has to say. Matthew chapter 6 verses 22 and following but i say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus obviously is not talking about self mutilation here. That's not what he's saying. Literally pluck out your eye, literally cut off your hand. Yes. Question. Oh, sorry, I'm in Matthew chapter 5. Don't pay any attention. Pay no attention to that thing on the screen up there. I'm reading from the right text. I must have accidentally typed in the wrong thing. So it's Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Well, what he's saying is not self-mutilation. You don't literally tear out your eye. You don't literally cut off your hand. But what he is saying is this. If you are looking at things, or doing things with your eyes or your hands that you know are leading you to sin in light of the fact that you have been bought with a price in light of the fact that you are not your own in light of the fact that you've been redeemed at countless costs, it would be better, whatever that thing is to get rid of it. If Facebook is something that you look at and it's causing you to sin, better to get rid of Facebook. That's what he's talking about that's what he means by plucking out your eye that's what he means about cutting off your hand now is that hard you know if you're attached to Facebook you know it's causing you to sin but you're attached to Facebook or whatever it is to give it up means that a little part of you has to what die see this is very practical Facebook may not be the problem for you but believe me it's a problem for others and you've got your own problems So our minds, our eyes, our ears, our tongues. Oh, this is a favorite of mine. You know, so often as Christians, we justify the way we use our tongues. We love to gossip. How many of you love to gossip? Raise your hands. I'm glad to hear some of you were honest. We all love to gossip. We all like the scoop. We all like to know what's going on. And very often, we try to justify it. I just want to know so that I can pray. <laughs> See, that, that's how we couch it in those kinds of Christian terms. The only reason I want to know it is so that I can be sure to pray for her. But James has some powerful things to say about the tongue. James chapter three, beginning at verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble on what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And it's interesting, he says, if you can bridle the tongue, you can bridle the whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce fruits? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Wow. You think about the tongue. When I think about the tongue, I think about the splitting of the atom in the 1940s you know when they split the atom the atom is, is a small thing you can't even see an atom things are composed of atoms of course but we we can't see atoms they're very small things and yet they have great potential they have great potential to do good you split the atom you can light whole cities you can power ships with atomic power You can also destroy the entire earth and everything on it. That's the way it is with the tongue. One word from a person of praise can be such a boost to them. It can turn their whole life around. Thoughtless, careless remark can break a heart, break a spirit, destroy life. to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. You want to know how we're supposed to live therefore in light of what God has done? He says, guard your tongues. In fact, if you can guard your tongue, you really can control your whole body. It's like a bit put into the mouth of a horse. 1500 pounds of flesh and you can direct it wherever you want it to go by just a small device. So to offer our bodies is to offer our minds, our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our hands and our feet. You remember the little song you used to sing in Sunday school, oh be careful little eyes what you see, oh be careful little ears what you hear, oh be careful little hands what you do, oh be careful little feet where you go, for there's a father up above and he's looking down with love, oh be careful Little feet, little hands, what you do, where you go. Now let's be honest, that's hard. (laughs) That is difficult. We're all sitting there thinking to ourselves, man, this is hard. And yet that is what we are called to do. In light of what Christ has done, you wanna know how we are to live? This is how we are to live. We are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And that's why I say the problem with the living sacrifice is that it wants to crawl off the altar. And that's why Jesus said it is something that must be done on a daily basis by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So go back now to Romans because Paul has something more to say. He says, therefore, here's how you are to live. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, And acceptable to God some translations say pleasing to God you know that's why we were saved Peter says this in his first epistle he says you were purchased to become a holy people what does that word holy mean that's what it means means set apart you were called to be set apart you were called to be different let me ask you a question are you different when you meet people on the street you encounter people you begin to develop a relationship with them can they tell that there's something different about you that you that you simply do not operate the same way as the culture you do not cooperate with the world can they see In the things that you look at, in the things that you say, in the places that you go, in the things that you do, can they see that you are dying to self on a daily basis? Doesn't mean that you don't wanna do the same things that they do, or go the same places that they go, or hold the same values that they hold, but can they see that you are dying to self on a daily basis and living not for self, but for him who gave up everything for you. Can they see that? Can they see that you are different? Markedly different. Reminds me of the story of the young man who had grown up in church, grown up in the youth group and went off to a secular university and he was off at college and, um, you know, college can be a very challenging time for young people. And he came back, it was Christmas break, and his youth minister asked him, he said, well, how are you getting along? Oh, I'm doing great. He said, you're not facing any persecution? Oh, no. Nobody dislikes you in any way? No, no. Said, well, man, that's remarkable. He goes, the young man said, yeah, nobody even knows I'm a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we joke about that. We laugh about that. But I wonder about how many of us We get onto an airplane, and we're sitting there next to a person. Can they tell that we're a Christian? Are we reading a good book? It doesn't have to always be religious. But it doesn't have to be Danielle Steele, either. Can they tell by the things that we are doing that we? And here's the final thing that Paul says. Present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want to close with a parable that Jesus tells. So turn to Matthew chapter 25. And this is one of those parables that I think many people find really difficult to understand. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 14. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there are two things that trouble us about this passage. One is that we wonder to ourselves, why was that last servant treated so badly? I mean, he didn't lose the money. I mean, he didn't gamble it away. He dug it in the ground. The master was no worse off than he was when he entrusted it to him. And the second thing is the fact that he describes the master as what? A cruel man, a hard man, who reaped where he was—he you know, didn't harvest, or harvested where he didn't sow. This is troublesome to us, but I want to suggest to you that we're misreading it that way. The problem and the point that Jesus is trying to make here in this parable: first of all, the master was not a hard man. The very fact, the master was not a stingy man. The very fact that he entrusted his wealth to others indicates that he's actually a generous man. He was giving this man responsibility. The problem is the man didn't prove himself to be responsible. And the real issue here in this parable that Jesus wants us to understand is that this man who dug the talent, dug the hole, put the talent in the ground, he was only concerned with what? Himself. He was only concerned with his own well-being. He was not thinking of the well-being of the what? The master. The other two servants, the one who had been given 10, the one who had been given five or two or whatever it was, those two were thinking not of themselves, but what can I do to benefit my master? And so they did everything in their power to multiply what they had for the glory of the master. When Paul in Romans says, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that's what he's talking about. That's what it means to die to self. It means to set aside, as I said, your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations, your plans, you set them aside for the glory of your master. It's not all about you because you've been bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourself. Instead, in light of what God has done for you, in light of the fact that you have the hope of glory, you begin to live in such a way that is for the benefit and the pleasure of the master, not for yourself. And you make the conscious decision to do that and you do it daily that's the therefore what's the therefore therefore it's for that it's for the glory of him who gave everything for you who gave up all creation all the world all the might all the power all the majesty and humbled himself that all of that might one day be yours let us pray heavenly father we have come to this new section of paul's epistle to the romans And we want to know how we should then live. And Paul is telling us this is how we should live. In light of all that has gone before, here's how we should conduct ourselves. We should be a different people, a holy people, a set apart people that the world looks at us and they can see that there's something unique in us, something different. The world saw something different in Jesus and they were drawn to him inexplicably. They didn't even know why they were drawn to him, but they were drawn to him. We need to ask ourselves, is the world drawn to us, not because we are like the world, but because we are so different from the world. The world is intrigued by us. I want to know why we are different. But in order for that to happen, Lord, we have to die to self. We have to give up everything that we want for the sake of him who gave up everything for us. And that is a hard thing for us to do. It is a hard thing to offer our bodies, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, to offer up those things. But it's in dying that we live. That's the irony. It's in seeking to save our lives, Jesus said, that we lose them. So grant us the grace to live sacrificial lives that we might find everything that our hearts desire and that we might be pleasing to our master. For we ask it in his name and for his sake, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. (laughs)